Thank you so much, Chris and music team. Can't think of a better way to prepare our hearts to receive the word of God than to sing the excellencies of Christ. To sing about the person and work of Jesus. So I trust your heart is filled as we come to the word this morning. Well, I have news for you this morning. Are you sitting down? Are you ready? Here it is. Our church is growing. Can I get an amen? Yeah. You're like, are we allowed to clap? For those of you who have been a part of LBC, it's been a joy to see how the Lord is bringing new people to our church. In fact, in the early days, our church was much smaller. I knew almost everybody by name. Now, 20 years later, as I look across a a sea of faces, I realize there's a lot of you I don't know and I've never met yet. In part, it makes me sad because I want to get to know each and every one of you by name. I I want to get to know something of your spiritual journey, where you're coming from, where you are now, where you're going to. But as Lakeside Bible Church is averaging over 450 people a Sunday and still growing, I know that as the attendance grows, so too must we as a church grow in our ability to love, to serve, and to care for one another as a church body. The reality is, whether you're a new visitor or whether you've been coming and attending for years, I may not have the opportunity to meet you after church today. As I stand by that door, I try to catch as many of you as I can. Some of you avoid making eye contact. Was it something I said? Yeah. I may not be able to meet you this morning after church to find out if you have any needs the church can meet. Maybe to step aside and pray with you or maybe even to invite you to visit our grow group. Well, well, practically a lot of our needs spiritually and physically get met through prayer and fellowship and Bible study and application. But here's the thing. If we as a church have the same kind of Christ-like love and otherness in our DNA, guess what? I won't have to because someone else will. You won't get lost in the crowd. You won't be forgotten. You won't attend Lakeside Bible Church. Have you ever visited a church and no one said anything to you the whole time except for the pastor? That's his job. You won't be forgotten. You know why? Because our church understands the significance of being a servant of unconditional love. Because our church body understands that to come corporately and to worship the Lord together, it's not just about what I get, but it's what I can do to serve and love others. So this morning, we're going to examine a text that should help us to continue to grow in this area, especially because our church is growing numerically. So turn with me to Galatians 5.13. 
In Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, the Apostle Paul guides us on a path that starts with freedom from sin and ends with sacrificial love. And so today, I hope to encourage all of us to be servants of unconditional love, loving Christ so that we might in turn grow in our love and service of one another. So this morning, we're going to examine three motivations that drive us to be servants of unconditional love. We're going to see the call, the caution, and the command. Follow along as I read Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Notice in the first part of this verse, we find the call. Paul explains our calling. This calling motivates us to remember our position and our purpose. And notice Paul begins with this word for. For. It's really a continuation of verses 1 to 12. In fact, look back with me at verse 1 here in chapter 5. Paul says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And notice in verse 6 and 7, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This gives us a little bit of a, of a window of insight into the context of what's going on leading up to verse 13, our text for this morning. Again, Paul is writing this letter to the Christian church in Galatia because some false teachers came in and began teaching a different gospel message. In fact, in Galatians 1.7, Paul says they were distorting the gospel, distorting it. In fact, look back at chapter 2, verse 4. Paul says, but it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. And then notice uh, verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ. And not by what? What does he say? Not by works, not by works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Again, this false gospel stated that you had to keep the Mosaic law. You had to keep the ceremonies and all of the regulations. In fact, it even said that in order to be saved, you had to be circumcised. Circumcised to be saved circumcised to remain righteous before God. Again, this is the legalism that Paul was condemning. And throughout this book, Paul makes it crystal clear that our God-given freedom that comes through repentance and faith in Christ, that's what enables us to be righteous, to be faithful, free from legalistic bondage and lust, the control of sin. In fact, our high school ministry is named after what book what verse, what chapter? Galatians 2.20, Paul makes that crystal clear. Galatians 2.20, as believers, we have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer us who live, but the life that we now live is what? By faith in works, 
going back, holding the law, being righteous in your own effort? No. The life that we live is by faith in Christ. So that sets up the context of what's going on in this church leading us up to our verse in verse 13. Paul says, for you, well, who's the you? Well, it's obvious he's addressing believers. We know that because just a couple words later, he says, brethren, he's talking to Christians. And who is the one who's doing this calling? God, by his grace. In fact, look back at Galatians 1.6. Galatians 1.6 I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Again, this call by God to us is the call to freedom, and it's mediated through the gospel. It's all about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Again, I already read it in in chapter 5, verse 1. That's why Paul says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. It's based on the redemptive work of Christ where he sets us free from slavery to sin by taking our place on the cross. And this is the call spoken of throughout the New Testament epistles. It's an effectual call unto salvation where God calls us from darkness into light, from death through regeneration into life. If we had time, we could look at Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 14, 2 Timothy 1, 8 to 9, 1 Peter 1, 15, and so on and so on about this effectual call by God to us unto salvation. This call to freedom when he calls us into relationship with himself through his son, Jesus Christ. For you were called to freedom The question we ask ourselves this morning is freedom from what? Again, think about this. What is the condition of every person who rejects Jesus Christ and the gospel? Romans 6.17 describes the unbeliever as a slave to sin. What does that mean to be a slave to sin? It means you have no ability to say yes to God and no to self and sin. You live a life enslaved to impurity and lawlessness and selfishness and even your best deeds on your best day in the eyes of holy God are what? Filthy rags. In fact, Titus 3.3 describes the unbeliever as foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Is that love? Careful how you answer that. It is love. What kind of love is it? Self-love. Why do we do these kind of things? Because somehow we think it's going to get us something or make us feel better. It's self-love. It's enslaved to doing whatever makes us happy, no matter what the consequences are or who gets hurt. You know, sometimes I think it's hard for us to picture slavery Sometimes, you know, someone would say hypothetically, like, Chris, you seem to be enslaved to Oreo cookies. Someone keeps leaving two of them on my desk every week. I will find out who you are. We don't understand what it means to be enslaved. I remember 
watching a clip from the movie Amistad. I think it came out in the late 1990s. This clip that I watched, it portrayed slaves being taken from their homes in Cuba to America in 1839. Visually, watching slaves be taken against their will, shackled, chained to one another, with no freedom, no choice. They couldn't do anything but what their slave master told them to do. And you look at their face, it's abject hopelessness. Horrific. And yet this is the picture of an unbeliever shackled to his or her sin. And for those of us in Christ, you remember what it was like, don't you? Before God in his grace called you to freedom in Christ. Being enslaved to the pleasures that drove you to do and say the things that you did and said. What an amazing thought. The God who calls us also provides for us freedom in Christ. Because the moment a person repents of their sin and puts their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, they are no longer slaves to sin. The shackles come off. In fact, in the very next verse, In Romans 6.18, just after he said, you were enslaved to your sin, what does Paul say? Now you are freed from sin. Romans 6.18. Think about this with me. When a person hears the gospel message and receives Christ as Savior, he is free from the guilt of sin because he has experienced the forgiveness of a great and gracious God. David recognized this in Psalm 32.5. He says, you forgave the guilt of my sin. But he's also free from the penalty of sin because Christ's death took his punishment. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Someone had to pay the price and Christ took it for believers took our sin, we got life, he got our death. The penalty, we're free from the penalty, but we're not just free from guilt, we're not just free from the penalty of sin, you know what else we're free from? The power of sin in the daily life through the indwelling spirit because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. In fact, that's what Paul argues here in Galatians 5.16. He says, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out what? The desires of the flesh. If you walk by the Spirit, the Spirit of God having regenerated you and indwelling you, illuminating your mind to understand biblical truth, you now have the ability to say no to sin and self and yes to God. To walk by the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. And you will not carry out the desires of your sinful flesh. This believer is regenerated, is a new creature, is enslaved to righteousness, resulting in sanctification and a life of growing holiness. Again, I think that's what Galatians 5.16 is referencing. Christians who live under the internal guidance and power of the Holy Spirit being energized to obey the word and the will of God. 
Romans 6, 6, our old self was crucified with him so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. This calling through faith in Christ is the freedom to live our life for God, to say no to self and yes to him. And think about this. This is so incredibly important because without this freedom in Christ, we cannot truly be servants of unconditional love. Think about that. I can't truly and selflessly love my wife, love my kids, love any of you without this freedom in Christ because the result of being enslaved to my sinful self, well, we know. Look at verse 19. In fact, Paul gives a list of what happens when we go back and allow sin to remain and drive us, the desires of the heart. He says now, I'm in Galatians 5.19, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. What does it mean that they're evident? They're obvious. Just turn on the nightly news. Look what's going on in Houston. Look what's going on in our country. Look what's going on in the world. When people enslave to the desires of their flesh, it is evident. And what are they? Immorality, purity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this. It's not even an exhaustive list. This and more. Is that loving? When people do those things to you or against you, do you feel loved? And why do you and I do these things? To love? Yes. Who are we loving? Myself. The deeds of the flesh is all about getting, not giving. You see, our call here in Galatians 5.13 motivates us to remember our position in Christ and the purpose of our freedom. It reminds me of who I was, enslaved to sin, and because I have turned from my sin, put my faith and my trust and repentance in Christ alone as my Savior, I am a new creature today. I'm not the same man I was. I've been called to freedom But along with this reminder of the Christian's calling to freedom in Christ, Paul gives us a second motivation driving us to be servants of unconditional love. Notice in the middle part of this verse, we find the caution. Paul says, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. This caution motivates us to examine our life and to pursue purity. Again, Paul cautions us that our freedom in Christ can very quickly turn into freedom to live selfishly. This caution, it's a warning. Paul is literally saying, watch out, pay attention, be careful. This can happen to you. This can happen to me. Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity. This word opportunity, it's the Greek word that was used to describe a, a central base that directed all of the operations of a military campaign. Think of it like a command station. 
This, is, this here is a warning not to allow our Christian freedom to become a central base to carry out selfish and sinful desires. I mean, think about that. If you're invading a, a, an enemy nation, you have to establish a beachhead first, right? Just think of all of the wars throughout the year, uh, throughout the years. If you go in and invade, you have to establish, get a, a, an enemy command center first going so that you can then push in further to invade. And here it has the idea of using my freedom as a springboard for sin and a pretext for indulging my own sinful nature. Again, think about this. If I am not using my freedom in Christ to love and serve myself, then who am I not loving and serving I'm not loving and serving God first, the greatest commandment. And if I'm not loving God first, who else am I not loving? Love your neighbor as yourself. Because I'm too busy loving who? Me. Can you serve two masters, Christian? What does Jesus say in Matthew 6, 24? You cannot serve two masters, for you're gonna hate the one and love the other, or hate this one, love this one, you're gonna prefer this one, reject this one, you can't serve God and money, the things of the world, the pleasures that the world brings you. You can't put you first and God first. You have to choose one or the other. So Paul says, do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for what? A base where the enemy can take charge and attack. It's for the flesh. Again, this word doesn't refer to our physical body, but rather to our self-focused desires and sinful self-will. Because even though the flesh is crucified with Christ, it's not altogether eliminated. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Yeah? You experience the, the flesh still, the side of heaven, between when you became a Christian and Christ comes back? Absolutely. We know this. We live this. We live in sinful fallen bodies. We still inhabit a sinful fallen world. In fact, this is why our flesh is constantly looking for opportunity to invade our lives and to try to take back that which has been lost. And nothing prevents loving, godly, Christ-centered, God-honoring relationships more than living in the flesh. Look at Galatians 5.15. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. That's not a good picture. This bite and devour, it has the idea of like savage wolves. Have you ever watched a wolf decimate a deer carcass? That's the picture. Don't do that. But what does Paul say? Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. What are the things that you please? Well, he's giving that list in verses 19 to 21 and things like it. 
It's as if we think back to the days of slavery shackled to sin and self as better somehow. Oh, remember the good old days when I could do whatever I wanted? And though we are free, we act as if we are enslaved. Instead, we must follow Peter's example, 1 Peter 2.16 1 Peter 2.16, Peter says, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Can I just give you one example of how we can turn our freedom in Christ into an opportunity for the flesh? This is hypothetical. If I have a conflict with my wife at home, hypothetically, this could become an opportunity for my flesh. Yes or no? I mean, even if it's her fault. Ladies, I said, even if. Some of you immediately like daggers being stared at me. Always supporting my wife, I know. Let's say we had a disagreement resulting in anger that didn't get resolved. Some kind of disagreement Uh, we didn't even agree to disagree. We just disagreed. As a Christian, do I have to respond in anger? Do harsh words have to come out of my mouth when I don't get what I want? Answer? No. And what are you and I thinking? Then why does it happen so often? Even though my sinful flesh wants to, I have been called to what? Have you been paying attention? What have I been called to? Say it like you mean it. Freedom. Freedom. I can, in that moment, say yes to God and no to what my flesh wants. an amazing thought. I can choose to follow his word. But what happens if I allow the anger to stay in my heart by not forgiving her as I've been forgiven, Ephesians 4.32? And what happens when I see them next if I remain in that state of being offended? You ever had that happen where you had a conflict and then you go to work or you're saying you have to put on your, your smiley face, hey, like everything's okay. And you still have that just in you. What happens when I see them next? When I see my wife next? Kind thoughts or angry thoughts? Wow, this is getting very specific for a hypothetical example. Now, because I'm a good Christian, I'm not going to throw things at her, right? I mean, after all, I love the Lord. I'm a pastor. I'm not going to throw things at her. I'm not going to go let the air out of her tires. She comes in and says, honey, all four of my tires are flat. (laughs) Got to take better care of your car, honey. If I harbor anger towards her, I will begin to grow resentful. I will begin to murder her with my mind angrily, as Jesus says in the book of Matthew. And then what will I do? Eventually, my mouth's going to get involved, feeling left out. Because from the mouth speaks the heart. 
and I will begin speaking badly about her to others, maybe our children, maybe a friend at church, and then eventually I will speak badly to her, harsh words, critical words, in an angry tone. Am I acting like a free man in Christ? What am I acting like? What's ruling my heart? The flesh. You say, well, Chris, I mean, she's acting like your enemy. You know, she's, she's just as much part of the problem. Can I get an amen? Wow, that was awkward. <laughs> Even if she is acting as my enemy, what does Jesus tell us in Luke 6.35? Love your enemy, do good. Lend expecting what in return? Nothing. Romans 12, 17 commands us to never pay back evil for evil. And in verse 21, we should not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? Good. Is that easy to do when you're in a conflict with someone? Because typically, how do you respond to evil? Well, you do that to me, so boop. And then what do they do? Well, you do that to me, so, and pretty soon you have World War III, hypothetically. So when I feel like getting back at them by criticizing or judging them, anyone else have an inner lawyer that wants to admit it? Okay, I am the only one. Please pray for me. When my wife gets into it, oh, thank you, one, one. Okay, we'll have a little support group afterwards. He just needs a hug. My wife and I get into a conflict and my inner lawyer comes up and what does my inner lawyer do? picks apart all the little areas where she didn't exactly remember what happened rightly. Well, honey, I didn't say it quite like that. I said it like this. What makes me do that? It's the woman you gave me, Lord. Nope. What makes my inner lawyer rear his ugly head? Pride. Because whose log am I focused on? Looking at her speck, I can't even see the log in my own eye. Matthew 7, 3 to 5. When there's part of me that feels like using my God-given gift of sarcasm to punish her, that always goes well. What can I do instead? Choose to love her. Choose to forgive her in that moment. Again, how have I been forgiven? Am I really going to be that unforgiving servant who walks down the steps having been forgiven a debt he could never repay and take that offense and hold it over the head of my wife? Yes. Absolutely. Did you hear what she did? And in that moment, what am I doing? Just put the shackles on. Let's let the desires of my sinful heart drive me around to my attitude and my tone and my words and my response. When someone threatens what I love, doesn't give me what I want. No. 
I can choose to love them. I can choose to forgive them. I can strive to resolve our conflict biblically all the while doing good to them. Why? Because I have been called to freedom. And this is why we have to be careful to use the word of God as the standard for how we live out this this freedom That's why there's so many verses tethered to God-honoring responses in this illustration. Everything that I do, I want to anchor and tether to the word of God so that my mind is being renewed with truth and I know what I need to not do and what I need to put on in its place. Otherwise, what happens? You're gonna use your feelings or what the world says is the same. Well, you know, I was listening to Oprah the other day and Oprah said that my feelings matter. And and Oprah said that when my wife talks to me that way, it's not respectful. And so it's okay for me to stand up and say, you're not respecting me, woman, a wife, I think she said. But anyway, Oprah said it, and now what's the standard? Something other than what? God and his word. Our feelings, what the world says, this will become the base of operations for the enemy. But instead, as we submit to the Holy Spirit who lives within us through prayer and the word, not not only do we have the choice, but we have the ability to honor and obey God, to do what is pleasing to him, walking by the Spirit so that we would not do the things that we please. So let me ask you this morning, Christian, have you allowed your freedom in Christ to become a staging point for the enemy? Do you have unrepentant, unbiblical beliefs or attitudes or responses or patterns of behavior. And the minute I say this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You and God. Have you not done anything about it for years? Have you allowed it to remain? For example, do you harbor an unforgiving spirit or grudge toward another? Do you tend to speak harshly about others or judge others with a critical spirit? Do you tend to maximize opportunities, or excuse me, do you tend to minimize opportunities to serve others and maximize your own personal time? When there's opportunities to serve or to get plugged in, do you always have a reason why you have to do something else that focuses on you? Do you make excuses why you don't have close relationships with other believers? Do you tend to keep yourself isolated? And I could go on and on and on. Examples like this. These are just a few of the ways that we turn our freedom in Christ into opportunities for the flesh because, and don't miss this, when we abuse our freedom, we actually lose our freedom. Do you get that? When we abuse our freedom, we actually lose our freedom. You can't submit to the Spirit and walk in the Spirit and the deeds of the flesh at the same time. This is not a freedom leading to independence. This is a freedom leading to God-dependence. Christ did not die on the cross to give freedom to us as believers so that we can do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, but rather so that we can do what God wants. And what does God want? Well, 
Just like he gave us a list from 19 to 21, notice verse 22 of Galatians 5. But in contrast, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So if I am living out my call to freedom in a conflict with my wife, what will be the fruit during and after that conflict resolution? There it is. That's what I've been called. That's what I have been given freedom to do if I submit to the Spirit of God in me. And if I'm too busy serving me through sinful, selfish decisions, I won't serve God and I certainly won't be serving others. So again, this caution, it motivates us to examine our life and to use our freedom the right way, which in turn enables us to better obey what comes next. Paul has reminded us of our call. He's given us the caution. And then he ends this verse with the command. The command, notice what he says, end of verse 13, but through love serve one another. The command motivates us to practice loving service. Notice he starts with but. This conjunction sets up a comparison. He's saying, don't do this, but do this. Don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but instead, through love, serve one another. And while serve is the command, it's interesting, I think the key word in here is not actually the imperative. I think it's actually love. Certainly we are called to serve one another, but why is love so important? I think it's, it's possible to serve, but to serve from selfish or an unloving motivation. You understand what I mean by that? I can do the right thing for the wrong, what, reason. You hear me say it time and time again. God doesn't just care about what we do on the outside, he cares why we do it. This word love, you guessed it, it's the Greek word agape. Affection, devotion, esteem, having a high regard for someone, an interest in another's well-being. God's agape love toward us is unconditional. And we are being called to through love agape one another. Every year my wife and I celebrate our wedding anniversary. 28 years of wedded bliss. 28 or 29? I feel like I should have worked this out before the illustration. 29 this December. Okay. My wife is smarter than me. You already know that. Math on the spot. 28 years. I try not to forget it. It's an important date. On my anniversary, what would you expect for me to do for my wife? I mean, think about it. 28 years of putting up with me. Does that change the way you respond a little bit? So what do you expect me to do? All the love and gratitude I have for her? Chris, buy her some flowers, more than one. Dress up. 
Shorts and a cutoff, not going to pull it. Actually, write something nice in a card. Just don't give her one of those pre-printed ones. Happy anniversary. I love you. You're the best. Chris. A little bit more, please, right? Make your dinner. Well, maybe not. (laughs) Let's not go that far. Pastor's wife poisoned. Husband tried to make dinner. Okay, that's probably unloving. Take her out to dinner so she doesn't have to cook, right? Chris, come on. That's the least you can do. Now think about this. What possible motivations might I have for doing these nice things for my wife? Duty. It's her anniversary. She is, after all, my wife. It's my duty. How about pride? Everyone else is doing it. I don't want to look bad. I mean, did you hear what Joe did for his wife? I mean, he took her out on a cruise on that pirate ship on Lake Conroe. Yo-ho, yo-ho. Pirate's life for me, baby. Romantic setting. (laughs) I mean, he did that. Look at me. Look what I did. Should I get the ribbon now or you want to give it to me later? Pride. How about obligation? Well, I guess I have to tell her I love her at least once a year. Or how about this one? The hope of receiving something in return. Maybe she'll let me buy that new weed whacker I've had my eye on. Honey, here's your brand new crock pot. See what I did there? Weed whacker? I already put it in the Amazon box. It's ready to go. All you got to do is hit click. Purchase. So many motivations, duty, pride, obligation, the hope of receiving something in return. But it's not only the action of serving that's important, it's why we do it. Think about this, the motive behind my actions, that's what enables me to truly and lovingly serve others. And what is my example of unconditional love? Think about this with me. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love toward us. God didn't just speak words of love, he did loving things. His love was visible in that while we were still sinners, what? So he loved us in spite of our faults. Think about that. He didn't wait till I was worthy, better, less sinful, as if that would have ever happened. He loved me in spite of my faults. Ephesians 5.25, how did Christ love the church? To death. God loves us selflessly and sacrificially. How about Romans 8.39, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. The love of God is unceasing. Again, think about how much of our love and our service is predicated on how I feel or what I'll get out of it or if I feel like they deserve it. Not God. His love is unceasing. Or how about 1 John 4, 19? We love because he what? First loved us. He didn't wait for us to make the first move. Think about how much of our conflict could be resolved if we just simply tried to love the other person that way and say, you know what? I'm not going to wait for you to go first. I'm going to go first. I'm going to love you by following these biblical principles to resolve this conflict. That's freedom. Freedom. 
The love of God is what enables and motivates me to love him in return. And the more I grow to love my Lord, the greater I can love you and others. Our motivation is essential. We are called to serve one another. And interestingly enough, this word literally means to perform the duties of a slave. Isn't that interesting? Serve one another. Perform the duties of a slave. To be other-focused. Again, Christians are commanded to serve one another motivated by Christ's love rather than using our freedom to be in bondage to the laws of legalism and lust. We are to use our freedom to be in bondage to one another. In fact, this is literally a slavery of mutual love. Do you get that? God has called you to freedom for this slavery of mutual love. Again, didn't Christ affirm this simple truth in the next verse, in verse 14? For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall what? Your neighbor as yourself. Love. He quotes the second greatest commandment. It summarizes the entire law. In John 13, verses 34 to 35, he said it differently. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. Again, what's the example he sets? How do you love one another? As I have what? Loved you. That's the bar. It's not how you feel or what you think they deserve or the way that you were taught to love others. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What an amazing testimony of the saving and sanctifying power of the gospel. This is the power of the gospel through the love of Christ. I think I have this quote on the back of your handout. Warren Wearsby, one of our favorite commentators, pastors, he said this, The amazing thing about love is that it takes the place of all the laws God ever gave. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself solves every problem in human relations. If you love people because you love Christ, you will not steal from them, lie about them, envy them, or try in any way to hurt them. Love in the heart is God's substitute for laws and threats. It's good, isn't it? You see, if I'm loving God, then I will obey him with the love of Christ motivating me to 1 Peter 4, 8. Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. To do Philippians 2, 3, and 4, to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for what? The interests of others. To do Ephesians 4, 29, to let no unwholesome word come out of my mouth, but only such a word as will edify and give grace according to what? The need of the moment. 1 John 3, 17, to give to those in need. And then in verse 18, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Do something. Just don't think about it. Just don't talk about it. I mean, how could I not? I was that slave. I was on that ship, enslaved, shackled to my sin, a prisoner of the hopelessness of a life without Christ. How could I not love others indeed in truth? After all, it was God himself who rescued me 
bound for hell. If you want to use your freedom in Christ for the purpose of serving others through love, then you have to do some spade work in your heart. You have to examine not just your heart, but how are you using your time and your money and where do you put your best work, your best effort? You've got to examine your priorities. What are the things that drive you? If you look at your calendar, what are the things that occupy most of your time? And even as you're doing those things, is loving service woven into that because it's such a part of your DNA because you have remembered your call and you are looking at the caution and saying, I don't want to use my freedom for me. I'm done serving me. So that even as you do all of those things, the love of Christ is so obvious and so evident. The rest of the world is experiencing verses 19 to 21, the deeds of the flesh, but everywhere you go, they see the fruit of the Spirit. Radically different. Jesus says, that's how they will know you are my disciple, because of that kind of love. Are you truly loving God first so that you may lovingly serve others? Again, this command motivates us to practice loving service. Does Lakeside Bible Church love this way? What do you think? The first five to seven years, I would typically be, the, uh, as the associate pastor, I would follow up with people who visited. And one of the, the biggest complaints or critiques we got was just the church is not very loving. They're not very friendly. They're not very, uh, I guess they're more inclusive. Some of you were here back then and you remember. And I think we had to honestly assess whether those people were true. Sometimes, it, no matter what we did, they, were gonna, <laughs> they didn't like us, they weren't, they didn't, you know, our church was just not for them. But I think there were a number of them who really, they, they really meant well when they said that. It wasn't to attack us. And so we prayed about that. And over the years, what have we wanted part of the DNA of this church to be? that we would live out our freedom, not as an opportunity for our flesh to serve self, but so that when we come to Lakeside Bible Church, because we love God so much, it is obvious to everyone, whether you've been here for 22 years since its beginning, or whether you are here for the first time, this is a church filled with people who love the Lord. And because they love the Lord, they love one another. By the grace of God, I think we have grown, but are we there yet? Have we arrived? Are we the loving church? No. And sadly, churches that want to uphold doctrine and, and have a solid preaching ministry tend to struggle in this area of just being servants of unconditional love. So I think messages like this, passages like this, challenge us and convict us to examine our heart, to examine are we being part of the solution or are we being part of the problem? This morning we've examined three motivations that drive us to be servants of unconditional love. The call that motivates us to remember our position in Christ, who we were, who we are today because of Christ and the purpose of our freedom. The caution that motivates us to examine our life and to use our freedom to pursue purity day by day, moment by moment, walking by the Spirit. And then the command, motivating us to practice this kind of loving service.
Because as our church grows numerically, I pray that we would continue to grow in the way that we love and serve one another, both in the church and in our community, as we follow Paul's exhortation in Galatians 6.10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this convicting passage, Lord God. It's encouraging because it reminds me of who I was apart from your grace and your effectual call, calling me from darkness to light, calling me into a right relationship with you through the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that if there's any man, woman, or child here this morning that does not have that relationship with you, that you would use this text the gospel that we've even sung before we even got to the preaching of your word to call them into that right relationship with you to true freedom in Christ. But Heavenly Father, we as our church grows, Lord, may we be a church that doesn't just love truth, but we love truth so that we can live it. And love has to be one of the top priorities, one of the top things that comes out of a spirit-filled walk. So Lord, would you challenge us, convict us where we are not as loving, where we are not using our time and our talents and our treasures to serve you the way we should. We're not as connected or plugged into this church as we could be. And if we're not growing there, maybe it's no surprise we're not being as evangelistic in our community as we could and should be. So Lord, we need your help to examine our hearts, our lives, to grow, to change. Lord, thank you for the growth that this church is experiencing. We know it has nothing to do with us. It is all to your glory and by your sovereign power and plan. You grow the church and you shrink it, Lord. So while we're in this season of growth, we thank you, we praise you for it. May we be found faithful to love you and love others as you have loved us. It's in the precious name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.